Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why, that simple three-letter question, is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe. Curiosity leads to discovery. Discovery leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to insight. And insight leads to understanding. Something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. Not too long ago, my friend Gary Kessler and I sat down to chat about a few topics related to cybersecurity. But our conversation, as it turned out, was more historical and perhaps contextual than it was technical. One of the themes that we talked about a lot is the idea that when knowledge is shared widely and broadly within an organization, the organization's better prepared as a whole to respond to unexpected events, whether we're talking about a cyber attack or an unexpected move by a competitor, or maybe the introduction of an unanticipated new technology, or perhaps an unavoidable event like a tsunami or an earthquake or a fire. We spent some time talking about our careers in technology, which started in the late 70s, and discussed the fact that as networks and computing resources became more pervasive, more available, more widely deployed, and as they went from being technical curiosities to strongholds of intelligence and money and competitive information, they also became targets. Once the attack started, it became glaringly obvious that one of the most damning liabilities in the technology world was that there was no single coordinated mechanism or organization for sharing intelligence about cyber attacks. And that was a serious problem. So in response, organizations began to appear, some of them formed by government, some of them formed by the private sector. But these organizations began to pop up charged with doing this very thing. They had names like the National Infrastructure Protection Center, or NIPSI, the Information Sharing and Analysis Centers, or ISACs, and their corollary ISEO organizations. Carnegie Mellon University announced that it was hosting the first Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, and InfraGuard, the public-private partnership between the FBI and corporate IT organizations, was formed. These organizations came into being during what is widely known as the Internet Age. In fact, a lot of people think that the arrival of the Internet heralded the dawn of information sharing. But Gary, you don't agree. The Internet did not invent the concept of information sharing. And most people today, when they think about information sharing via things like the ISACs and the ISAOs, think about this in terms of, ooh, critical infrastructures. If one wants to peg a date to that, it starts in the Clinton administration back in, you know, 97, 98-ish timeframe. But Nipsey did not invent information sharing. We already had that on the internet. And like I said, the internet didn't invent it either. And yet all of these things came about really more, not with a hell of a lot of pre-planning, but out of necessity. We had no information sharing in a serious way on the internet until the internet worm. I guess one could argue that in critical infrastructures, we didn't wait for an attack on the critical infrastructures, but we did see that it was inevitable 
But be that as it may, information sharing has been a response of necessity. So that's one way, I guess, of looking at it. Yeah, but don't all organizations routinely share information? I talk about information sharing, but I think about it more, it's strategic information sharing, which is borderline intel sharing. To a large degree, if I look at most information sharing, I'm not sharing with you good news. Hey, there's a new version of Firefox. I'm sharing with you bad news. Hey, the last version of Firefox has a hole. (laughs) You'd better fix it. Oh, by the way, there's a new version of Firefox to fix the hole. We're trying to share information that if you don't know about, you might be in danger. Let's talk about that for just a minute. You and I both know that information can be your best friend or your mortal enemy. So how does that apply in terms of cybersecurity? My argument is this. The bad guys know about the problem and they can start to exploit it. If one bad guy knows, unless they feel that there's reason that they want to keep it to themselves, this is information that they sometimes freely share with others, particularly if they know that they have X number of days with which basically the good guys don't know about it and the good guys aren't able to do anything about it. So my argument is that when there is a known flaw, these ought to be released to users so that users have a fighting chance of making an informed decision about do we continue using the software or not? And and, and I'll give you some uh, a very concrete example. Again, it's old, but it, it's good enough. Back in the 1990s, Internet Explorer was just rife with security problems. They were awful. So whenever there was a new flaw in Internet Explorer, it was like, oh, again? And there were actually countries whose governments declared that no government computer could be using Internet Explorer. That was their approach to fixing the problem, which was, we're not waiting for the vendor to fix it. We don't care if the vendor fixes it. We're not using the software. So while on the one hand, if you are using a particular vendor's software and you find out that there's a flaw in it, one viable solution is to stop using the software, but that should be the customer's option. Now, in many cases, the software is going to be so embedded in your systems that there's really nothing you can do, but at least you know that the flaw exists. Maybe there are some workarounds in your firewall. Maybe there's some other workarounds in your policies and procedures, but at least you have the ability to make an informed decision about going forward with using software that you know has a flaw and a vulnerability in it. Okay, let's explore that for just a minute. Let's hop in the Wayback Machine and talk about how we got here. When I was in grad school in the 1970s, we always talked about the fact that you'd have an operating system and it's going to have some bugs in it. I won't call them bugs. They had errors in them. So we're going to collect the errors In the next release, we're going to fix all the errors. How many new errors just got introduced? And I remember being at a conference in 1976. And, you know, it was a big software engineering conference from the ACM. And somebody said, how many errors are okay in OS 360? And there was a guy there, I believe his name was Alan Perlis. And he sat there and he sort of tapped his you know, finger on his mouth like he was really thinking. And he said, seven. And everybody in the room just broke out in laughter. I mean, how many errors are okay in software? We're striving for zero, but seven is okay. Let's take Windows. And I don't mean to take pot shots at Microsoft, but, but let's take Windows for a second. How many flaws are there in Windows? And how many flaws does Microsoft get notified about in, in a week? 
And let's just say for kicks and grins, they find out about 100 flaws. They can't fix all 100. So somehow they triage and they decide, okay, these are the 20 worst and, and we're going to fix them. That means 80 went unaddressed. Now, next week, they learn about another 100 flaws and they're looking at which ones are the potentially the worst and they fix what they can. This is why governments and militaries can end up having arsenals, if you will, of zero day exploits because they know that there are some flaws that can be exploited but they are so far down the pecking order, they're never going to get fixed. This is unfortunately the nature of software. Now, I, I want to go on record as saying the following, since I do consider myself to be a software engineer, or at least had a title with a couple of jobs that called me a software engineer. I do not believe that it's inevitable that we have errors in software. Some of the software errors we have are because of crap code. I mean, why do we have code that still suffers from buffer overflows. We know how to prevent those. Why do we have code that suffers from bogus inputs? Because we know how to do input checking and we ought to be able to stop all of those. So there's a whole class of problems that we have in software that literally should not exist. Part of it is, well, crappy coding practices, I'm sorry. Some of it is a rush to get product to market. That's why some of that still exists. And so I, I believe that we can tighten up our, our, our software practices. I was actually having a discussion relatively recently with somebody because we were talking about all these programming languages that were invented in the 70s and 80s to make flaws in code harder. I observed that back in the uh, early 1980s, I was working at one of the national laboratories and I had a project that I had to write the code in assembler language. I wrote it in structured assembler, honest to God. I mean, I've observed that you can write crap code in any language and you can write good code in any language. And there are some programming languages, I think, that make uh, flaws a little bit easier to introduce. Crap code, nicely said. I think you should trademark that. So a bit earlier in the conversation, you made reference to the internet worm and how in many ways it led to the establishment of some of the organizations that I referred to back at the beginning of the episode. But the story is also one of those be careful what you wish for, you might get it prophecies. You want to prevent so much information sharing that you end up introducing a fog of war, if you will. On the other hand, I think we also have to be less restrictive on who is able to share information. We need to have trusted centers, but I also think they need to be free. And I think that is one of the problems we're running into now. Most people who, who will be listening to this probably are not familiar with the internet worm, but the internet worm occurred in November of 1988 which puts it before the internet was commercialized and before there were a lot of users of the internet. I mean, you, you could still count in the thousands, the number of hosts on the internet. And when you say it was a community where everybody knew each other, you were mostly right. So the internet worm was introduced by a fellow named Robert T. Morris Jr., who was at the time a graduate student, I, I believe at Cornell. And during one of his summer jobs at AT&T, he discovered a couple of flaws in SendMail, and he pointed out to people, this was, of course, the, the Unix community at the time, and saying, hey, there's these problems with SendMail. 
And people scratched their head and said, hey, yeah, you know, you're right. Well, first of all, don't do that. And secondly, why would anybody do that? So he was extraordinarily concerned. And so concerned, he decided he was going to demonstrate the flaw on a real network, namely the internet. Now, ironically, due to a coding error on his part, he was able to exploit the vulnerability and cause the vulnerability to move on to another computer. But inadvertently, at such a rapid rate that it just spread from computer to computer like wildfire, which was not his intention. But meanwhile, you now had the following problem. Because it started um, in the area of Cornell, and, and the way the internet was designed at the time, it started to emanate now out of the Northeastern United States. So system managers started to see it coming. And so on the one hand, they started calling all their buddies to the West and to the South saying, hey, something's going on. We don't know what it is, but it's crashing computers right and left. So either wait for it to hit your computer and your computer will now go down or unplug your computer off the internet. Now, again, when I say unplug your computer off the internet, I'm talking about University of California, San Diego, UCSD had three computers on the internet. Remember, this is 1988. So system administrators all over the place are now jacking out of the internet or they're shutting their computers down or they're getting nailed with this worm. Morris realizes what is going on. Contacts somebody else and says, listen, there's a fix. You got to tell people about the fix. So they start broadcasting information. Now, whatever means they can, there's a fix. Here's what you need to do. Okay. So now there are people saying, wait a minute. We didn't know the first thing was coming. And we have no idea who these people are that are telling us about a fix. And we're not applying any fix from people we don't know, because this could be just a one-two punch that we'll never recover from. Because what they discovered with the worm is once your computer was offline and you rebooted it, you were okay, at least until you got hit by the worm again. So the internet was down for several days. Now, one of the results of this was DOD said, we cannot allow this to happen again. And so they gave Carnegie Mellon University a whole bunch of money to form something called the CERT-CC, the Computer Emergency Response Team Coordination Center. And the mission of CERT-CC was if you've got issues like this, vulnerabilities that you find or things happening in real time, like an attack, you notify CERT because CERT is a trusted entity. And when CERT now comes around and sends you messages, and you know I too, like many people, were on their mailing list. You're going to get a message from CERT telling you, A, this is happening. If we know how, B, we're going to tell you how to fix it. And you knew the message was coming from CERT because they had, you know, all the appropriate crypto signatures and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, it had to come from a trusted third party, one you could validate and one you could verify. And now the CERT function has largely been taken over by DHS. I mean, CERT CC still exists, but then there's the US CERT, which is the DHS entity. But certainly information sharing and intelligence sharing didn't stop there because one of the things that when Morris found that the, the flaw in SendMail and, and he said, hey, this is a problem. And, and people said, yeah, but like, you know, who's going to take advantage of that? You started to see the same thing started to happen in the Windows operating system. And back in the early 90s, I want to say 91-ish or so, there was some flaw that was found in Windows. And some people publicized it. And Bill Gates publicly observed, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's a problem. 
but it's impractical to actually exploit that vulnerability. Enter loft heavy industries. Um, you spell that, by the way, L0PHT. Loft heavy industries for a long time had the tagline, making the impractical practical since 1992. And they launched one of the first hacks into Windows NT, up and something that Microsoft, Bill Gates specifically had claimed, ah, that's impractical. So we basically had a lot of email lists where people exchanging information until the mid 90s, I think 96-ish or 97-ish, there was the development of something called the NT bug track mailing list. And anybody could get on the list. Anybody could provide information. Anybody could provide fixes. It was a little bit, you know, what you see is what you get and caveat emptor. Um, on the other hand, the information was astounding. And originally focusing on Windows NT, but then, you know, going out to other things as well uh, within the, the Microsoft domain. And, you know, again, people were getting information and then they could make some cogent decision about what do I do with this information? So all of this, the internet worm, the vulnerabilities of Microsoft software and so on, really kicked off a flurry of activity around cyber protection. So when did it really start and how did it play out? Also in about 97, maybe 98, we got the Clinton administration identifying that, you know, there are certain critical infrastructures in this country that if they are in any way exploited in a bad way, really affect our way of life, they affect our economy, they affect our ability at national defense, homeland defense, et cetera. And so by executive order, there was the creation of something called NIPSI, the National Infrastructure Protection Center. The FBI ran it. They identified something on the order of 16 critical infrastructures, water supply, food supply, local government, energy, transportation, basically the same ones that we have today. And they also quickly realized that something on the order of 80% of the critical infrastructures in the United States were owned by the private sector. Now, 80%, who knows where that number comes from? We've been quoting 80% for the last 25 years. I believe that there is a single source. I think it was some guy musing that, hey, I think about 80% of the critical infrastructures are owned by the private sector, and that now has become the number. But in any case, it caused the FBI to form something called InfraGuard. And InfraGuard was one of the first, if not the first, public sector, private sector, information sharing groups, where FBI called people together and basically said, we want to form, the, form these groups so that people can come together and we can share intel with them, which they almost never do. And the private sector can share intel with us so that we can help defend critical infrastructures. Now, 1998 was a bad time for the FBI in terms of the fact that for the next several years, 9-11 being a big part of that, their mission kept changing. So eventually Nipsey got pulled from the FBI and went elsewhere. And then eventually we have DHS, who's now responsible for the critical infrastructures, but InfraGuard still exists. And again, the idea is how do we get all these critical infrastructures talking to each other? or the owners talking to the government so that the government can do their job. And quickly they realized, well, obviously every critical infrastructure needs to have its own information sharing. And that's where they came up with the idea of these things called ISACs, the information sharing and analysis centers. One of the best ISACs ever was called the multi-state ISAC. And the multi-state ISAC 
covered a ton of different vulnerability vectors, cyber being one of them. And anybody could get on the mailing list. Anybody could go to the website. And it didn't cost money, which was an essential way of making sure that the individual players like me or a small player like a small utility company in Vermont or a Pacific Gas and Electric and a Florida Power and Light could all be in the same place at the same time because they're seeing different things. You know, after 9-11, people were talking about, I mean, look at all the money New York spent so that they would never again ever be a target. I get that and I understand that. But if I was a bad guy, I often said back, you know, when I live three miles from you, Steve, you know, it'd be a really great target, Vermont. Vermont has a half million people in 10,000 square miles. That's more than that probably, but we all think we're safe. It's idyllic. You want to get to the heartland of America, you go to a small place, you hit Wyoming, you hit Vermont, because that's, like I said, people feel that they're safe there. Gee, thanks for making me feel better. I assume that's why you moved to Florida. Okay, so what happened next? The ISACs eventually got more and more specialized. I mean, you you had the transportation ISAC. Then you got the railroad ISAC and the aviation ISAC and the maritime ISAC. And if not an ISAC, maybe an information sharing and analysis organization. And ISAO, there are some subtle differences between the ISACs and the ISAOs, but, but fundamentally their mission is pretty much the same. The problem with many of the ISACs today, in my opinion, is that you have to be a member organization. And that means that if you're not a member organization, you can't be necessarily getting all the detailed information that you need. Now, since my area is maritime and we're largely talking about maritime issues, I look at the fact that we've got hundreds of ports in this country. We also have 12 million recreational boats. They're not going into the ports so much as they're going into the marinas. And the maritime folks, when they think about MTS cybersecurity, if they think about ports, they're thinking about the big ports. They're not thinking about all the other entryways of getting goods and things into and out of the US. And yes, it's true. I'm not taking containers into Daytona Beach, but there was a time where we were still chugging cargo up and down the intercoastal waterway. And um, they were going to inland ports or on inland waterways. I'm still able to bring in people anywhere I can find an inlet in the United States. I can bring in people. So you want to have a mechanism whereby everybody in the space who wants to know what's going on has the opportunity to know what's going on. Back in the 90s, when some of the first hacker tools for the internet were coming out, you, you, you may remember there was um, a hacker tool called Satan. I think it was something like the system administrators tool to analyze networks, something like that, which by the way, if you wanted, you can reconfigure so that the name was Santa. There were a bunch of people who said, this is the coolest tool in the whole wide world. Basically it was Nmap before Nmap came out and Metasploit before Metasploit came out. Santa provided the ability where you could do a certain amount of vulnerability testing and port scanning of other computers. You could already do that on your own computer, but now you could do it on other people's computers. And, and there were folks saying, oh my God, this spells the end of the internet. If you can scan my computer to find flaws in my computer, well, you know, what hope do we have? 
And there were a bunch of other people saying, well, why don't I use Satan to check my own computer? And then I can see what everybody else sees. And if I know what my vulnerabilities are, I can make an effort of fixing them. And I got to tell you, there were people back in the 90s who absolutely refused to use a hacker tool on their own system because it was somehow immoral, evil. I don't know what the, what, what the hang up was, but there was this sense that somehow using a hacker tool was the wrong thing to do. And without realizing, like every weapon is a two-edged sword. I can use it for offense. I can use it for defense. So what I hear you saying, Gary, is that really this is much a culture shift as anything else. And I, and I know where you're going with this, and I'm in violent agreement with you. There's a maxim out there in the cybersecurity world, and I believe, Steve, you and I have talked about this already, which is the vulnerabilities trump threats maxim. And, and basically, the idea is we are too frequently building our cyber defenses against our perceived threats. Well, I have no way really of knowing who, who my threats are and where my threats are coming from. And if I build my defense around my threats and I get the threats wrong, I'm screwed. Yet I do have a mechanism where I can learn about my vulnerabilities because vulnerabilities are internal. I control them to the extent that I can control anything internally. So if I can discover my vulnerabilities, I can fix them. I can mitigate them. I can get rid of the software that is providing me this never-ending you know, set of weaknesses and vulnerabilities. I can take some sort of action and I get some sort of control from that. The bad news is management. If you were to go to management right now and say, hey, look at um, you know, I'm, I'm using the Apache version 17 web server and Apache is now out in version 21. We need to upgrade. Uh, management's going to say, yeah, why don't you put that in the next budget cycle? But if you were to say, hey, I'm a Ukrainian affiliated company and that Russians are after me, you can be sure I'm going to get the money right now. It's not the way to build a cyber defense, but it is the difference between the professional who's building the cyber defense, and all too often the managers who are controlling how we're able to you know, move our resources around. But in some ways, Gary, doesn't this go back to culture? Most of the people that are listening may not never have seen a line of COBOL before. COBOL was designed so that you could write it in such a way that you removed all the formulas. So if, if I wanted to multiply two numbers, a and B, you know, in Fortran, it would be something like C and then the equal sign A asterisk B. And that meant, you know, C equals A times B. Whereas in COBOL, you might actually write out the words C and then the word equals A multiplied by B. Presumably, this is far more readable. And the thought that somebody had at the time was that if your manager could read every line of the code, they somehow would know what a program is doing. I, I get it. I mean, in the 1950s, this was all sort of new, but it, to me, it was likening it that if I could take you into a forest and tell you the name of every tree, that somehow you would understand a forest ecosystem. And of course, you won't, because all you know is the name of every tree. And, and so open source was designed that I can actually read the code that I'm going to use in my company. So I know what it's doing. Yeah. 
So I'm going to take in this, you know, 500,000 line piece of code and I'm going to read it and I'm going to know what it's doing. And I have to admit that there are probably only about six pieces of open source code that I have literally read every single line and I know what they're doing. They all have to do with AIS and they all have to do with my area of research. That's why I read them and I read every single line. I have used OpenOffice. Yeah, I may have looked at the header file for something, but I don't even pretend to have read every line. But that was the promise of open source. And indeed, there are enough people that are reading every line that you sort of have to say, well, do I trust the open source community? And there are others say, cannot trust the open source community because anybody can do anything. So it is cultural. This gets us back to the whole philosophy behind open source and the silly magic behind the EULA, the end user license agreement. I mean, how can you possibly trust the Linux operating system? Okay, but you trust Windows. Why? Well, because it cost me 150 bucks. And it came with a EULA that says, I am responsible if there's any problems. That's really good. Have you ever read the EULA? You're paying money to somebody who is held harmless, and they are the ones that know all the risks, all the vulnerabilities, and all the weaknesses. And after you pay them money, you are responsible. So I'm not quite sure how that is better than the open source movement, but be that as it may. That is you know, sort of where we, where we find ourselves. So how is that any different than what we saw in the past when this all started? I remember in, in the 80s and the 90s, particularly around the time of the year 2000 problem we we're trying to fix, I was still running into companies, mostly governments, that refused to buy any software that was not shrink-wrapped in something. So I couldn't buy software online where they would download me a link to get a .exe file. I actually had to have floppy disks or CDs or however they were distributing it. People were unable to move forward. If there was anything that was the epitome of the digital world, it's software. Now, software was only the second biggest seller on the internet. It, it took a while for people to shift. Right now, I don't even know how I would buy software on media, nor do I know what media I would use. I trust the open source movement sufficiently to say this and feel pretty good about it. Is there a potential that bad people will insert themselves into the open source movement and insert bad code, and of course. But I look at the way things like GitHub and GitLab are organized, and I observe that if a bad guy did that, good guys would find it relatively quickly. And those bad guys would not be able to insert those changes you know, for long. I still observe that it's a lot easier for somebody to build an app for my Android and maybe even for an iOS device, but certainly in the Android world, and put it online and sell a new version of Solitaire for 99 cents that also steals all of your creds. Why do I need a, a version of Solitaire on my computer that needs access to my contact list and my camera? Really? And there are some people that'll download stuff and they'll just say, yeah, if it needs permissions, it needs permissions. So a little bit of it is we need to you know, protect ourselves, which is probably time for another talk. But there are a lot easier ways of sending out uh, bad code to the masses. Just ask Solar Winds. I'm going to seriously date myself with what I'm about to say, but a few of our listeners will get it and smile. So here goes. Okay, Mr. Peabody, time to hop in the Wayback Machine and head back to the present. 
Thanks for taking this retrospective journey with us. And thanks, Gary, for your thoughts about information sharing as it relates to cyber hygiene. Take care, everyone. Be safe. We'll see you in the next episode. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.